Hey everybody, my name is Jay Lee. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody knows who I am that'll be watching this video, or at least recognizes me. I uh, lead worship on a pretty regular basis here at Northwest Community Church. Um, Tom asked me to kind of continue our study on Ephesians this week. I'm going to be handling Ephesians 4 um, and just kind of sharing with you some of the things God has put on my heart as I've been uh, studying that particular chapter in connection with the other chapters of Ephesians um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, don't worry, I will do my best not to break into song randomly. Uh, but before we kind of jump into Ephesians 4, I just want to remind everyone, if you haven't had a chance to do this, um, it's really good to read the entirety of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, as we've said over and over again, is a letter. Uh, it's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, and all of us have gotten letters before, and what we don't do is go to page 2, paragraph 3, and just read that one little spot. Abby, my wife, writes me letters all the time. She'll leave them for me on our kitchen island, which is right over there, and if I wanted to, I could read that in a way where I just read the little part that says, Jay, thank you so much for everything you do. I love you so much. Um, but the reality is that letter to me, I need to read the whole thing to actually see what it's about because the letter starts out, Dear Jay, I need you to stop at the grocery store on the way home. We need milk, bread, gummies for the kids in their lunchbox, peanut butter, bananas, apples, you name it. Everything that I forgot to get the first time I went to the grocery store. Jay, thank you for everything you do. I love you, Abby. The letter is not a love letter. It is a grocery list, and she's just graciously telling me, although you forgot everything, I still love you. Thanks for what you do. Um, and so I, I need to read that thing in its entirety in the same way we really ought to read this as a letter in its entirety to us. And I'm mentioning that because we've talked about it some, kind of the arc of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are really kind of an unpacking of the gospel. And as you get to 4, where we are now, you start to turn and get to a Christian ethic or behavior. What do we do now that we are living in this truth? We have been given this identity that's been talked about in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. How do we act? Um, and I heard a great summary kind of of the book of Ephesians. It was basically just the book of Ephesians can be summed up of you're this, now act like it. That's the book. And so, but to get through that, to get to the now act like it, we really need to wrap ourselves up in chapters one through three. So I kind of just wanted to go back and hit a couple of the high points. Um, when we were meeting with our small group, one of the things that kind of came up and whenever uh, we were asked, you know, what stands out at you, uh, several people mentioned this verse. It is verse five of chapter one. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, this concept of adoption that he's giving us, just bestowing on us an identity. And I know a lot of you maybe have been to um, adoption, uh, the, the 
times when families have adopted kids, and then you go up to the courthouse, and it's like a party, and the judge bangs the gavel, and it is a new person. Um, they are given a new name, a new family. Um, it's, it's new, an identity that is bestowed on that person, having done nothing at all but just given to them. Um, and then moving on in chapter 2, uh, this idea that you're dead. Again, this is who you were. You were dead in your trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, you're dead. God, when you're dead, loves you and bestows a new identity on you. Inheritance is referenced later. How he seats you at his right hand with Christ. How he gives Christ to you. That Christ indwells in you. And you are one with Christ. All of that, we need to wrap ourselves in that before we get into this, well, what do you do? Because if you don't, then it just becomes a checklist of things that we're doing and it can be dangerous. Um, I grew up in a church, uh, went to church from the time I can remember. My parents were wonderful Christian parents, took me to church every Sunday. I was at church on Wednesday nights. I did the church choir thing, youth camp, all this wonderful stuff and went to a great church, gospel-centered church. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, what I heard for a long time was that you know, being a Christian just meant what I was doing. And I could be pretty good at that. Um, and, and as I grew older, I, I began to grasp and really understand and appreciate the truth of the gospel and this freedom uh, that, it, that it provided me. And so I think before we move on, just like Abby's letter has a turn, before we move uh, on to chapter 4, we, we just want to wrap ourselves in that truth. Um, and before we do that, I just kind of want to take a quick opportunity for us all to pray together, and then we'll read chapter 4. And I think it's fitting, we're going to leave off kind of where Scott left off last week, um, and that's at the end of chapter 3. I'm just going to read the prayer uh, that's at the end of chapter 3, just like Paul did as he transitioned from the gospel and moved into kind of the Christian ethic. I'm just going to use his prayer, and so let us pray. God, uh, for this reason, we bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us strength with power through your spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so if you would please go ahead and grab a Bible or phone, whatever you have. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version ESV. That is going to matter eventually as we work through um, work through chapter 4 of Ephesians. But just kind of for outline purposes, here's how we're going to kind of work through this. I'm going to talk first, and we're going to spend some time slowly easing into, um, easing into this chapter through verses 1 through 8, 
just to make sure we're kind of getting a general principle of the shift from gospel to Christian ethic, um, we will then jump over verses 9 through 10. 9 through 10 is kind of a parenthetical. I kind of read this and look at it and go, this just sticks out. I think this is a little bit of Paul kind of being ADD and can't helping him can't help himself from being a theologian and wanting to talk about something that's kind of just stuck in the middle of the chapter. Um, so we're going to jump over that just because that's a topic in and of itself. Um, then we're going to kind of camp out at verses 11 through 14. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Paul's description of kind of how the local church should work. Um, I think for purposes of Northwest, Northwest Community Church, I think this is a great set of verses for us to spend some time on just as being a new church and it's kind of we're setting up our identity um, and what we're about. I think um, it's good to go through this and see what the Bible says about how church uh, should work. Um, and then we're going to kind of finish uh, with some examples towards the end of the chapter after 14 um, of kind of examples of the Christian ethic. What you'll see uh, in Ephesians is Christ saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. Now act like it. You're this, not this. Therefore, act like this, not this. And it flows like that. At the end of chapter 4, he'll start saying, do this, not this. Do this, not this. But again, we want to keep that within the context of our identity. Um, so, turning to verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humil humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. All right, so... Looking at verse 1, there's one thing that we want, I want to kind of sit on for just a second. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. That word walk um, in Greek, the, the Greek text, which Paul likely wrote the book of Ephesians in Greek, um, the word that would have been used for walk is peripateo. Um, if you look at the definition and the meaning of that in the Greek, it is to make one's way, progress, to make use of opportunities. Uh, when you start putting it in a Hebrew context, it's to live, to regulate one's life. Um, it's more than just a walk. It's wrapped in that identity. Um, and it doesn't just happen. Um, I love the example of adoption and the bestowing of identity, uh, you know, when we when we come to Christ. But the interesting thing is, if anyone, and I know there are people in our church who have adopted, um, I, I think it's particularly interesting when I know folks who have adopted kids that are older. I know people that have adopted 
um, kids from other countries. Uh, one of my law partners, I'm, I'm an attorney. That's apparently a big secret in the church. Shocker. Um, I'm a lawyer. One of my law partners, uh, great Christian guy, um, elder in his church, um, just wonderful family. They adopted um, their son, uh, adopted from Africa, um, went over there, got, got him, brought him back, just this wonderful, joyful, this great thing. They were so excited and obviously still are and, and, and loved him just like their child. He is their child. They adopted him. They bestowed an identity on him. You're a smith now. Um, you're not who you were. You are someone new. But automatically within him, this was not something, it's almost like he has an identity crisis. Um, it didn't happen immediately within him. Uh, he, an interesting story he told, my, my partner told me was that they get home and, and everything is going great. And they start explaining to him, here's what we do. We're smiths and this is how we live. This is our family. Um, and one thing they, they encountered quickly is this is the family dog. Um, their son grew up in a village in Africa where dogs were not pets. In fact, dogs were very scary to him. And that wasn't explained. It wasn't explained the role of the dog in the family. And so he attacks the dog, um, thinking he's trying to keep his family safe. And so it's not something that immediately happens. In, in Christ, it's something that immediately happens with us. But often we struggle with that. And, and I heard Matt Chandler gives a wonderful example of this parapateo walk, that it's a process, not an immediate thing, and really God's relationship in that. Um, he describes it, um, it, parents can relate to this. It's, you know, when kids are learning to walk, kids, you know, physiologically, you have all seen it with your kids, they, they, they kind of will pull themselves up on a table and they start to to kind of bob like this, and the parent's sitting over on the side kind of doing this, and the kid's bobbing, and because the kid has this enormous fat head, the, phys the physics of it just make his head go forward, and he starts to kind of walk, and then inevitably what happens is, boom, face plant. And every single time, the parents are saying he's walking. They're rejoicing and excited None of them say, idiot. It's not. It is, he's walking. Uh, and so, that's, God is patient with us. What, when we fall, when we stumble, he's not surprised. Um, it, it's not something that he knows what we're going to do. It doesn't take him aback. Uh, and so, and it's not just our own walk. Uh, the interesting thing is that the word, the Holy Spirit, that phrase that we use so often, that comes from the, the word paraclete, um, which as you start to interpret that in the Greek, it's counselor and it's alongside. So as we walk, we have this God that walks alongside us and encourages us. So I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. Um, it's pretty simple, just to walk. Um, and it says, in a manner worthy of your calling, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, go get a calling or find your calling. Um, and we'll get to this a little bit more in detail kind of in the second kind of part of this. But 
Um, so often we're looking at things and going, we're, we're just searching for what God wants us to do. What is our call? Well, God has given us our call. It's actually pretty simple. It's, you're my child. Just, just be my child. Walk with me. Uh, there's a, if there are any Bonhoeffer fans, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great German scholar, uh, wrote one of the, I think what people would refer to one of the best books on Christian community. It's called Life Together. And in his book, he has a, a quote uh, that just was crushing to me. And it is, uh, he says, God hates visionary dreaming. Um, and the point is, is that God has enough vision. He's got enough of it himself. He's got, he knows what his plan is. Um, I just need to walk with him. Uh, and as, you know, that God hates visionary dreamings, I, I, I love Tom. Tom does a great job of actually making this simple. He'll just say, let's just love our community and be present and be a part of it. And, you know, I'm like the worship leader. It's like, but also maybe a smoke machine. Um, but, uh, again, God, God has enough vision on his own. It's one of the reasons we sing, Be Thou My Vision. Um, I went through a period in my life where I feel like I was kind of searching, like, what, is, what, what does God want for me? What does God want for me? Um, I don't think it's necessarily, you don't have to read this, but it's a great book um, that helped me. It's called Just Do Something. Uh, I'm going to get the title right. This is, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, well, I can't read it. Oh, well. Um, it's too small on my computer screen. Uh, but the deal is it's basically... And you can see it play out in the rest of the section of the verses. Uh, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. The call is universal to all believers. The call is the same. The gifting is different. Um, and we see this, we're going to see it more as we go down uh, around verse 16. We'll see how this kind of works, that we all have different gifts, but our call is the same. Um, and so let's move on. We're going to jump over verse 9 and 10 and move on to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, um, this is an interesting little piece of kind of church history, and particularly translations. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'm not sure what you're reading from. Um, I would love if there was someone out there that was reading uh, from the King James Version, because it would help illustrate this immediately with you. But I think we'll be able to do something to where we can all take a look at it and kind of compare. So what you'll see, if you're looking at verses 11 and 12, you'll see a lot of commas in there. Uh, verse 11 and 12 uh, is the section of Ephesians 4 that is known for what is called the killer comma. Um, I, we mentioned this, but obviously... the Ephesians was written in Greek. Uh, 
And if you want to go take a look at what it may have actually looked like, you can go to the University of Michigan's library website. You can pull up Papyrus 46. You can actually see um, it is the oldest manuscript of Ephesians we have. It is in Greek, and you will not see commas. Um, what you can do is you can read a lot. You can actually read on the University of Michigan's website about the punctuation, how it works in ancient Greek, and you'll see that they have marks for breaths that are kind of like commas, but the interesting thing is there's no commas. Um, as the, the Bible was translated into English, uh, the King James Bible did something um, that actually has, has just kind of been changed in the last hundred years or so. And so a lot of us, um, through our parents or grandparents or through, if you, if you grew up in the church, have probably been affected by this to some degree. Um, you'll see, and he gave to the apostles, comma, the prophets, comma, the evangelists, comma, the shepherds and teachers, comma. Okay, so after teachers, you have a comma, and then it says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the implication is teachers are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, I'm hopeful we can actually get... A, I think we'll be able to do this, but hopefully right now we can throw up um, a screen that shows the King James Version, English Standard Version, New American Standard Ver Bible Version, and New International Version, um, all side by side. And what you'll see in the King James Version is it says, he gave some pastors and teachers, for the teaching of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, the implication being that it's the, 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 the pastors, it's the, the, the professional Christians' job to do the ministry. Um, if you go to the English Standard Version, NIV, NASB, most modern translations remove that comma. I know we're talking about a lot about commas, but... Commas actually are important. Um, there's kind of a cool, funny thing I found on the internet that says, um, let's eat, comma, grandma. And there again, let's eat grandma. So then it says, comma, save lives. That would be something that my mom was an English teacher. She'd probably think that was hilarious. Uh, but yeah, as, as delicious as grandma is, uh, we, we don't eat grandma. Um, and so the commas matter because... When we don't have that comma, what it says is that the teachers are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so we are all called. Uh, we are call, all called to the ministry. Um, in the absence of that comma there to say that this is, this is Tom's job or Zach's job or Abby's job or Karen's job, the folks that we're paying to do the, thing, you know, the ministry, that's just not right. It's not what, that's, that's not how this works. It's, we are the ministers. Um, and I think it's worthwhile as Northwest Community Church that we stop and say, hey, if we have a ministry whether it be youth ministry, kids ministry. And if, if there's something that maybe we don't like about one of those things, um, well, what are you doing? This is your ministry. Um, 
the, the folks that are the, the professional Christians, they're there to equip. But these are our ministries. They're our ministries. Um, we need to own those. Um, and I think that's really clear. And you can say, well, well, how do we know the King James Version didn't get it right and stick the comma in? Well, the answer to that is probably you move down a little bit. You can see uh, verse, let's see, 15 uh, which we'll kind of move back, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it, it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, the context of the whole passage is that we are all called. We're all ministers. We all have a common calling um, that we walk in the manner in which we are called with separate gifts, but our calling is the same. We're all ministers of the gospel. Um, and so I, I think it's important for us to own our ministries. Um, if really the people of our church aren't, if it's not getting supported and not being driven by the people of the church, maybe we shouldn't do it. Uh, just a thought. Um, and so I guess the next part is moving into verse 13. Uh, it's kind of the, how long do you do this? How long do we get to work in the ministry? Well, it says chapter or verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And news on that verse is that that basically means until we die. Um, because, just so everyone's clear, kind of back to where we were, this isn't something that happens. It's a walk. Um, we are not sanctified uh, immediately. God saves us, but then we walk, uh, we walk that out. And so we get to do that until death. Um, and so then it says, verses 14, why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and from by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes than what we read before. But so it's saying there not to be like a child, but what, what aspect of a child? Because the Bible actually has and, and speaks to us having childlike faith and having characteristics of a child. But here it's saying not to be volatile, um, not to be easily swayed or moved um, I love the example, kind of this characteristic, uh, kind of of wandering. I love to think of sheep, um, which is another example, kind of of this same concept that the Bible uses. Um, but ask yourself, you know, in, in when you walk through the or the sheep when they walk through the valley of darkness or through the green pastures, um, is the sheep in danger when he's in? the valley of darkness? The answer is no. The sheep is actually not in danger when he walks through the valley of darkness. What determines the safety of the sheep is the proximity to the shepherd. Um, the wandering is what is a problem for the sheep. The sheep can be, can be in danger if he's in the green, green pasture, if the shepherd's not near. And so this wandering, this volatility... Um, is what the scripture is speaking to.
Verses 17 through 24 is this kind of third section of Ephesians 4 that we kind of want to talk about. And this is kind of now we're fully into, okay, this is what Christian life looks like. We've talked about it generally. Uh, we've, we've, you know, hit the, you're called, you have giftings, the calling is common, the gifting is individual. Here is what it looks like to be a local body of believers um, then we get into this section, which is the not this, but that. And that's 17 through the end. And I guess just for time's sake, um, I'm going to kind of hit a couple of examples. You can see the, well, moving down to verse 28, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him live, uh, let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Uh, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up. It's again, it's not this, but this. Because you're not this, you're this. You're my child. I am God. I am not like other gods. So you are going to be like this and not like others. Um, it's the setting, setting apart. Um, and so the this, not this. But one verse kind of in this section that... I uh, kind of hold dear, I guess, is verse 25 and 26. Well, and also the 27, 25 through 27. Um, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Now, that verse, uh, Abby and I have, I probably each mentioned that verse to each other um, during our marriage. Um, A lot of times this don't let the sun go down in your anger is used as a conflict uh, conflict resolution verse. It's actually not. It's a reference to a psalm where it's actually talking about inward reflection. Um, but nevertheless, I'm betting if you're married and you've been in an argument at night, um, I think the irony, the, the funny thing about this verse is don't let the sun go down in your anger. That's usually mentioned at like 1130 at night when you've been arguing and everyone's tired. It's like, don't let the sun go down in your anger. We're going to resolve this. The sun went down hours ago. Uh, it's been down since 5.30. Let's just go to bed. What, what this is talking about is resolving issues in yourself. Letting the sun go down on your anger. Uh, be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Inward reflection. Do not let, give opportunity to the devil. And so taking this from a kind of relationship type conflict resolution context to what it really is, is a inward reflection, um, which it's this, not that. Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Um, This, not that. Uh, Kind of an inward reflection context. I remember it was a couple weeks ago. I am wandering around the house with my iPad. I'm following the Texas UT game. I specifically remember I had my iPad and I'm walking around because I wasn't able to watch the game on TV because it was on ESPN Plus. And also, Abby 
was watching The Bachelor. And so I get to walk around the house with my iPad reading what's happening on the little game tracker thing. Um, and so I'm walking, and I'm walking from this room over to our kitchen, and there's a chair for some reason, which isn't where it goes, but there's a dining room chair in the middle of the walkway. I, looking at my iPad, run into it. iPad goes flying. I hit the deck. It hurt pretty bad, and so, but I jump up, and I start yelling at people um, because I, I feel like men emote really poorly, um, and I, I, being a man, and one of those, I have like two emotions. It's anger or angry or not angry. Um, and so I'm up, and I immediately, you know, people, I actually start driving people away because I'm angry. Well, if I actually stopped and said, all right, let me investigate. Let me, let me not let the sun go down on my anger. Do not sin. If I actually reflect on what I'm feeling, what I'd probably realize and start thinking about it and what's going on and what's actually happening within me is I'd realize I'm embarrassed because I threw my iPad across the room and hit the deck and hit the floor and I'm sprawled out. So I'm hurt and I'm embarrassed. And instead of me yelling at people and being angry, the tr true emotion is I'm hurt and embarrassed. And I, instead of that, I, I, I probably need a hug. Um, that's what I really need. And if I, if I were just to do that and stop and think about that and think about those things on a daily basis, that, that's kind of the example of the this, not that, that you see kind of in this last section. There's lots of examples, like I said, for time purposes. Um, I don't know if we need to go through each one of them. But from the main thing of today, uh, I want to make sure we know uh, that all of us have this calling um, it's just to kind of live and walk in that identity. We are given separate gifts, but the calling is the same. Um, we're supposed to walk uh, together as a church, we doing ministry, because that is part of that calling, that we are ministers of the gospel um, and that we're just supposed to kind of wrap ourselves up in that identity as children of God. Um, hope you all have a great week. Appreciate you all tuning in. Thanks.